Social media is always awash in pet videos and images, but since the COVID lockdowns, it seems as though there's even more pet content to be found online as cats invade video conferences and dogs beg for even more walks. There are sometimes even calls in spaces such as Twitter for people to share pet images when someone's having a bad day. The connection between pets and wellness is one of the focuses of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Alan McConnell. McConnell is University Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychology at Miami University. Over the years, his work has been supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation. And one of his areas of research expertise is how relationships with family and pets affect health and well-being. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. So I, I've been looking at a couple of your papers, looking at pets and wellness and the connection, uh, you know, with with wellness for, for, for families. How did pets become something that you wanted to research? You know, it's kind of... It was just kind of an accident, actually. Uh, several years ago, I was working with one of my grad students, Christina Brown, and we were studying self-concepts. And one thing that we just kind of noticed in some ancillary statistical analyses that we were doing is that a lot of people, and, and these were a lot of undergrads at Miami, but also people in the community as well, would frequently mention that among their different self-identities, whether that was like a parental self or a athlete self, they would often mention pet owner self. And we just did like a really quick correlation and found that as people were more likely to mention own, uh, having a pet owner self, their well-being was greater. So, you know, we were just in the process of writing a chapter and I just told Christina, hey, just go out and find the citation for that and tell, you know, we'll just put it in our chapter and say, hey, we, we see the same thing. And she went out and she came back and she's like, the data aren't out there. Like we know that people who have lots of health challenges benefit from pets, whether that's uh, the elderly people who are HIV positive, but there really was no studies in the psychological literature looking at how everyday pet owners benefit from pets. And that's kind of what launched us into the research. I mean, at the time uh, I didn't have a pet. I was pretty agnostic on the question, uh, but really, it just kind of came out of our self-research, and that's kind of what then led to like the last 15 years of work that we've done. Alan, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that uh, pets improve health, some specific ways yeah, that sure, you sure. found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've, we've done a number of uh, types of studies. Some of them have been correlational in nature. So, for example, one of our studies, we looked at people who went to the uh, Animal Adoption Foundation, which is outside of Ross. So if you're ever driving up to Oxford, up to 27 from uh, Cincinnati, you would see that on the right side as you're going up. Um, we looked at people one summer who were coming in and looking uh, at the prospect of, uh, of adopting a pet, you know, a dog or a cat primarily there. And then we tracked people two months later who had adopted. And we found uh, from that study that two months after adoption, uh, people's depression uh, was significantly lower having adopted the pet 
compared to when they came into uh, to look at the pets originally. So, you know, that's one example of sort of a correlational study that we've done. Um, you know, we can't randomly assign people to adopt a pet or not adopt a pet, but that gives us a way to sort of look at, at those sorts of studies. Uh, we've looked at differences between pet owners and non-owners and find a whole host of differences in terms of health, self-esteem, uh, even more positive personality characteristics. So people who uh, adopt and, and have pets or companion animals tend to be more extroverted. They tend to be more conscientious. And both of those are really important personality characteristics of happy, successful, well-adjusted people. So uh, we have a variety of correlational studies like that. And we've also done a bunch of experimental studies in the lab. And as a scientist, that's, those are the ones I find most satisfying. You know, I, I I almost hate to say this, but when you said you're agnostic on the topic, I, I thought that must mean you you don't believe in dog. I'm sorry. So my wife and I uh, actually uh, adopted a rescue dog last year. Uh, so that I kind of got on the dog train because I kind of thought, you know, if I don't believe my own data, then I'm kind of you know, so. so now you do believe in dog. Okay. okay. Yes. So now, are you less depressed now? Uh, definitely. I think it's helping me a lot with COVID-19 right now. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'm really interested in the, the kind of studies that you've been doing and how you formalize the inquiry into this. You know, one, one thing that you were saying is it's, it's hard to randomize someone into saying, I'm going to put a dog or a, a cat into your life. I mean, so, but, but that you could be studying people that, that have, that were at a sort of similar place before they acquired this. I mean, there's sort of this whole issue of, could you do some kind of, I don't know, case control study where you do matching of, of people that cases, you know, people with depression, people without depression, and then looking at things like the odds of pet ownership or, you know, sort of these designs that come out of, of kind of health inquiry and public health models. The, the other thing is this whole issue of causal inference is another thing that would come up when you think about the effects of, of something like pet ownership. So yeah. just general question. Yeah, that's a good question, John. So, what we, so for example, if I go back to the uh, AAF study where we looked at depression down the road, we were able to make comparisons. So when people came into to the pet shelter, we knew at that moment there was no differences between the adopters and the non-adopters in terms of well-being, you know, self-esteem, depression, uh, stress-related illnesses. We we're also able to statistically covary out those uh, kind of mm -hmm. antecedent factors as well. Mm -hmm. You know, that still doesn't mean that the people who chose to adopt were maybe not on a different sort of, you know, psychological or financial or socioeconomic trajectory. So there's a lot of things that, that we still can't control for. But in a lot of our studies, we've been able to covary out those individual differences that might account for some things that might lead to a spurious conclusion. But, you know, it, it's always an open matter. There, there's a really great study that was done almost 15 years ago uh, by this researcher at uh, SUNY Buffalo, Karen Allen, where they actually did kind of do the random assignment to conditions. They had oh. a bunch of stockbrokers in New York City. Uh, I think this study was done back in 2001 or something like that. And they got them all to agree to consider adopting a pet. And then based on random assignment, they gave some of them a pet and others were just a waitlisted control. And they showed differences between those two groups. Oh, wow. I don't think the stockbrokers made more money, but they were happy. <laughs> so, so Alan, I, I, we have two rescue dogs and three cats, and 
And, uh, and so I loved reading about your research. So what I want to know is about what do you do about pets that cause stress? <laughs> so like we, I have a dog. If it starts storming in a little bit, she's going to be in here and she's, she's 65 pounds and she's going to want to be in my lap. <laughs> so does the, does the uh, stress relief that I get from my pets, is that, is that uh, undercut by the amount of stress? stress that some some pets can cause well i i think it would be foolish to say that pets are a panacea uh <laughs> obviously you know pets require care they require physical uh exertion they require money so i don't think that pets are always a positive uh development our data shows that on average they are but but that's not a, a given mm -hmm. so i think that there are probably some you know more needier animals, uh, you know, people who are older maybe, you know, are at greater risk of some sort of physical, you know, if you're walking your dog on an icy sidewalk, that's that may not be the best sort of situation. Uh, but we also know from a lot of data that even, you know, we, we know this from human relationships, and, and I'm sure the same extends to pets as well, that being needed is a really valuable thing psychologically. It, it you know, if, if you feel like you can be of service to your animal. So if your dog comes in and is super nervous in a few minutes and you feel like you're helping to calm the dog, then that gives you a real sense of hmm. contribution to this thing that you care about. So even though that might require energy and a stressful pet, uh, you're probably getting benefits out of that. We've had Jessica Myrick, who is a researcher at Penn State and does research on sort of, I guess, parasocial interactions with animals via media. So she was an ignoble honoree for her cat <laughs> yeah. video study a couple of years ago, which found that if you watch cat videos at work and then go back to work, you're a bit more productive because you sort of are, are decompressing by watching the cat video. I wonder if you have done any work um, looking at at people's relationships with animals via media and whether you have found anything similar to what you found in sort of like the, the family situations. So a couple of ways to respond to that. One is, so I'd mentioned Christina Brown, one of my, mm -hmm. she had her PhD at Miami. Years later, we did a follow-up study where what we looked at was individual differences in people's kind of propensity to engage in anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. So anthropomorphism is when we ascribe human-like uh, socially supportive traits to non-human entities. Yeah. So if I think that my dog Leo is considerate and thoughtful and concerned about me, you know, even though that's you know completely in my head and I'm projecting those qualities upon the dog, that helps me build a higher quality relationship with an animal compared to thinking that my dog doesn't have those capacities. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we looked at, we, we measured people's propensity to engage in anthropomorphism. So we knew some people were much higher in that trait than others. And I would be had, one of those people. Excellent. I, I serve <laughs> one of the panelists. Uh, and, and then we had people uh, write about a time when they were socially rejected. Mm -hmm. So this was an experimental induction of a negative social experience. And then what we had people do in our study was just view slides of photos of dogs and cats and other animals. They just popped up on the screen for eight seconds, you know, and they saw those for about four minutes. And then afterwards, we measured people's well-being mm -hmm. at the end of the study. And what we found was that viewing the slides was helpful to people, but especially for the people who are prone to engage in anthropomorphism. Yeah. So if you're someone who tends to project those qualities on animals, just looking at them, you're not interacting with them. They're two-dimensional images on a computer monitor. Even that has a, a positive effect on people. Mm -hmm. this, so 
you know, this is this is part of. Would you say the the general class of psychology called positive psychology? Is that fair to describe this, or is can you help me understand kind of how this fits in, in terms of the, the the broader picture of of problems that that you're a social psychologist? Is that right? By That's correct. Mm -hmm. So within the scope of of kind of the practice of social psychology, how does this type of work plug in? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, if you put 20 psychologists in a room and ask them to define positive psychology, you'll get 40 different definitions. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I, I think it is it is part of that positive psychology space where, you know, I think a lot of psychology, especially more clinical psychology, where you look at psychological dysfunction, uh, but a lot of psychology is really focused on what causes problems? What are judgment decision-making potholes? What are the situations where people do maladaptive things? So in my view, positive psychology is looking at the beneficial psychological consequences of a variety of experiences. So uh, in our lab, we focus primarily on pets. We've also focused on uh, the environment and contact with nature. And you know, we look at things like positive emotions, well-being, so a bunch of outcomes, pro-social behavior, outcomes that are, that are positive because they're benefiting the individual, they're benefiting larger social collectives, and often those are being driven by positive emotions, a sense of belonging, and things like that. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Miami University's Alan McConnell. Alan, you are talking about how you do this, um, you're sort of situated within this realm of positive psychology, um, and, and I am coming out of a journalism background, and Richard as well, and you know, we don't always have journalists don't always have a great track record when it comes to covering um, stories about research, whether it's medical or, or otherwise. And I wonder if you would be willing to share maybe um, an example of what you think was a good reporting related to maybe your work and maybe an example of what was not so good reporting. Wow. Uh, so I. <laughs> In full disclosure, I was a journalism minor as an oh, oh, well, welcome. And, uh, <laughs> former editor at my college uh, newspaper at University of Cincinnati, oh. and also have been an editor of journals. So my journalism has followed me all the way through. And, and you know, uh, even though I'm sure sometimes my emails could use a lot more terseness uh, to my <laughs> faculty, um, I, I, I think it's benefited me. Um, that's a really tough question. So I don't know if any particular ones stand out. I think it, I can't predict it in advance. I mm -hmm. did a spot with uh, Huffington Post uh, about a year ago, and the questions were just really, really amazing. Like they really were interested in, well, what are your control groups? How are you really establishing this? Uh, and, and they, they asked a lot of great questions about, well, what do you think are the limits of this? What do you think are the mechanisms underlying this? Have you done mediational analyses? So they were really breaking it down uh, like a scientist. And yeah. this was somebody who had uh, a psychology background, uh, but just kind of thought about things in kind of a systematic way. And conversely, I think the, the ones where the, the sort of interviews fall apart are kind of when either people have they're kind of interested in explaining something about themselves. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, my aunt is a crazy cat woman. Why is that the case? <laughs> and that's their agenda is trying to, you know, and, and I get those sort of motivations, but it doesn't make necessarily for a great interview, I would right. say. I'm, I'm glad he didn't give stats and stories as his bad example. <laughs> I, was, I, I was on pins well, and needles. Yeah. There's still time, John. There's still time. <laughs> that's right. So Alan, um, just historically, and I'm, I'm mostly talking about uh, 
my sort of personal relationship with pets. And oh, here he goes. Here goes your, your <laughs> I know. The crazy cat lady part of the story. Uh, no, but I'm going to put this in history. So when, when I grew up, you know, my mom grew up in the Depression. She's 94. We never had pets. We had five kids. None of the families that we grew up with, big Catholic families with eight kids. My aunt had 13 kids. Nobody had cats and dogs. And I asked mom once, and even to this day, she doesn't sort of get it, but she does say when we were growing up in the 50s, having a pet was a luxury. Mm. And if you grew up in the Depression, you know, and you had five kids, there was no room for, for a pet. H has, have you incorporated any of these sort of generational shifts um, in, in any of your work? Or uh, th that's just something that I, I'm, I find curious. All of mom's children, by the way, have pets today, <laughs> multiple pets. Yeah. So we've gotten back at her for being denied pets when we were children. Nice. I'm sure she appreciates that. Um, <laughs> that's a great question, Richard. And uh, the short answer is no. Uh, but I, I, I think there's a couple things that I find interesting there. One is that, uh, so for a number of years, I was an uh, instructor in the Earth Expeditions Program at Miami. So I've been to places uh, teaching uh, conservation, places like Belize, India, you know, places where, you know, the, uh, the mean socioeconomic level of, of the population is much, much lower. And if you look in countries like that, like India, for example, it's interesting because a lot of people have a pet per se, but it's not a pet like we think about it in kind of contemporary upper middle class North America where, you know, Fido or Fluffy lives in the house and eats fancy cat food yeah. or, you know, things like that or gets lots of new chew toys. But there might be like a neighborhood dog who bounces around between four or five different homes in a small village, but each family that helps to care for that dog maybe they leave scraps out every other day or or they'll they'll play you know and kick a ball around and play with the dog for a little bit each one of those families that at least the ones that i've that i've met personally view that pet as a really important fixture in their household but it's just not the same as what we think about here in the united states where it's like it belongs to one household it stays in the house the second part of that is that the functionality of pets varies a lot even in our own culture. Mm -hmm. So again, I think there is a sort of story about how, you know, modern uh, upper middle class privileged people have these pets. But, you know, I also grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in that farm setting, you know, most of our animals were outdoors. So we had two cats and their, their job was to catch mice in the barn. My best friend has two dogs that are outside primarily for protection. And, and you know, they, they have a dog house. He loves the, the dogs dearly, but they're not home dogs. They are dog house dogs. So I think even within our culture, we see a lot of variability in kind of how people approach pets. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that the bonds are different, but they're just, you know, serving different sorts of ends. Yeah. In, my, in my house, our our cats are charged with catching mice in the house. <laughs> nice. And they're good at it, too. No judgment about so, your house having mice, though. <laughs> we live in the woods. Ah, fair enough. So I'm, I'm curious just to, you know, you've talked about kind of the benefits such as self-esteem and this idea of more involved, more fitness, less loneliness, less fearfulness, more, you know, kind of other positive components as well. This is These are studies predominantly in in the U.S., I assume, and... I'm just curious, do you, 
do you know of research that sees generalizability to other cultures to around the world that this type of, of uh, pet positive impact of, of engagement with with pets uh, you know not not enough data I think that would make me feel comfortable with with saying mm, that it's mm. that pervasive so there you know there are lots of countries uh, Brazil has like 30 million dogs. Uh, Japan has like 9 million cats. So you can find particular cultures where pet ownership is pretty high. And in those uh, cultures, there's been evidence showing that that pets seem to have these positive benefits. Uh, but again, th there's so much homogeneity with those three cultures that can and think about the U.S. as a third culture where I, I don't necessarily know how how comfortable I would be with, with saying it is just a blanket sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I would say though, that what we get out of the belongingness and what we get out of the social connection piece that we see in pets looks so similar to what we see that people get out of their connections with people. Oh. So to the extent that those are some of the mechanisms in play in different cultures, I think the, the benefits and the functionality would be the same. So I, I was gonna gonna ask you about kind of some of the work that that you you and your colleagues have done in terms of the the environment and thinking about conservation and and the you know we've you know all as as we are talking here remotely and all of us in our separate separate homes and environments this sense of isolation is something that that you've talked about kind of the benefit of pets and some of the the positive components of that you've also you know one of, one aspect of your lab is looking at at what's going on in terms of of kind of the the your self nature representation and your relationship with that can you talk a little bit about kind of work that you've done there and some of the benefits that that you've uh, you can identify in terms of the interactions with nature oh yeah thanks uh yeah this again is, is great research that my grad students have been really uh, central and uh, tyler jacobs is one of them where what we've been looking at and again, a lot of the research that I do, whether it's the pets or the nature or the family stuff, is all about thinking about the self-concept and how people build on that. Mm. And, you know, it it goes without saying that, you know, one of the most existential crises that we're facing as a species is global warming. And, you know, even if you have even some doubts about that, I don't think anyone is pro-pollution or anyone is, you know, pro-wasting, you know, natural materials. Um uh, so, you know, there's just a lot of important stuff that we need to do there. And I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that people identify issues like global warming as something that is very, very important to them personally, yet people don't ever seem to be motivated to do anything about it. People will say, I care a lot about the environment, but they still drive a big honking SUV that gets 20 miles to the gallon, or they refuse to carpool to work because it would be a little bit inconvenient. Or, you know, like there's just so many ways that people could do something, and, and obviously, their, you know, their choices with elected officials reflect that as well. Uh, so I think what we've been trying to do is figure out, can we harness the self in some sort of way to amp up the motivations that people have to make them more uh, connected to environmental causes? So the basic approach that we've been trying to do is kind of twofold. One is trying to get people to incorporate their sense of nature more into their self-concept. So basically, can you make nature a bigger part of who you are as a person and then secondly, we've also been trying to find ways to make people feel like nature is relatively bigger than they are. Mm. So basically, if you have this great aggrandized sense of self and you're this narcissist who thinks that you're God's gift to everything, then you don't really feel like you, you should have any sort of role to sacrifice 
to benefit others, to benefit plants, to benefit animals. So what we're trying to do is shrink people's sense of self, but get greater overlap between their sense of self and nature. So that's kind of the two-pronged approach that we've been taking in a lot of our research. And how's that gone? How, have you have you had success? Have you found how would you measure success in that in that kind of work? <laughs> Uh, well, we've got a number of papers that are under review right now. Uh, we have a, a third re-re-revised uh, paper. Um, so I guess if it gets published, there'll be success. And if it gets rejected, there'll be non-success. Uh, but this, this is work that we've really just been doing in the last five years. Uh, so we've got uh, three papers uh, where we've been looking at things like can we get pledges to be more powerful and more effective? This actually started from a senior thesis project in my lab a few years ago. Uh, one of our students, Lauren Gottschalk, got us started down this path about what is it that makes a pledge powerful? How can we use psychology to make someone who might sign a pledge be more likely to follow up on that pledge? So we've taken that sort of track. We've taken sort of the self-nature uh, representation track. And the third area that we've been focusing on to kind of tie it back to positive emotions is looking at what's called self-transcendent emotions. Yeah, yeah. So, so these are emotions that are more focused on others. It's not like things like pride, but it would be more about an individual's sense of accomplishment, but it's a sense of awe, you know, that kind of sense of like you're looking at a vista and you're like, this is amazing. This, this large, you know, the Grand Canyon is a place that seems to trigger on everybody. You look at this amazing vista and you're like, I'm such a grain of dust compared to this. So those sorts of positive emotional experiences are really tied into, into pro-social behavior and pro-environmental behavior in particular. Well, Alan, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my Thanks, pleasure. Alan. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.